a little bit of pause here and there. Anybody know? Mind didn't. The mind doesn't. No, it doesn't, doesn't it? So tonight I wanted to talk about um, some ways that the Buddha gives us of letting go. And I think sometimes when we sit like this, we one of the things, of course, we get to see are the places where we don't let go. And sometimes letting go is really letting go, putting something down. But of course, sometimes letting go um, is also letting be. It's letting go of wanting it to be something other than what it is. And whichever way is your favorite way of getting caught, or maybe you have both of them, um, when we sit, we often see exactly where it is that the mind is holding on, or where it's going. And one of the things we see is that it goes all the time. It goes here, and it goes there, and it wants this, and it doesn't want that. And then it gets sleepy, and then it gets agitated, and then it comes back, and kind of how it goes. So it's helpful sometimes to think about, well, what could we do that would be a little different? And and often, you know, I have many conversations, people want to sit down and talk about, you know, what can I do to my practice to make it a little better, you know? What is it time to do now? You know, do I need to sit more? Is it time for another retreat? Should I sit this retreat? Should I sit that retreat? Should I do metta? Should I do mindfulness? Should I sit twice a day? Should I sit half an hour? Should I sit an hour every day? Whatever. Um, those kinds of conversations. And so you all know those places where, where um, and it's tricky because we both want our practice to get a bit better because that's why we're all here. You know, we're here to deepen our practice and to be more present. But we also um, know that place where it's never good enough. You know, that you, you do, you sit, or you go on a retreat, and you come to classes, and, and then, but that's not quite good enough. Maybe you should sit a two-week retreat, and then you sit that, and then you take another class, and you read 15 books, but then you think, well, maybe I should set you know, a month-long retreat. And there's always something else that's out there. And then you can go to Asia, and then you could ordain as a monk or a nun, and, you know. So the Buddha talks about, in, in looking at this process of letting go, he first looks at where it is that we're caught. He's, he's enormously practical in all of his teachings, and of course it's useful to see, okay, so, so where is it that, that we most likely get caught in our practice? And sometimes when I look at this, this particular set of teachings, I get a little, uh, because the first thing on the list is sense pleasures. And so immediately my, my own personal defensiveness comes up. Well, I'm not a monk, or I'm not a nun, you know. So, what is this about sense pleasures, and what's wrong with them anyway? So, but you know, it isn't sense pleasures only in the sense of um, things that you might give up if you were a monk or a nun. You know, your 
your nice clothes or your, you know, the, whatever kind of sexual activity that you might engage in. And I think more often it's not those things. And there are some interesting things to really look at. Like where do I, where do I get caught about sense pleasures? One, I think, that is very prevalent for us in our culture is comfort. We like to be comfortable. If you want to check this out, just watch what happens in the meditation hall on a long retreat. People work so hard. You know, at the beginning, there's always, at Spirit Rock, there's always a big stack, like back there in the corner of all those extra cushions and things. And as the retreat goes on, all of the, and then you see people have six cushions here, and three cushions there, and the back jack, and the shawl rolled up, and, and you know, everything, just trying so hard to be comfortable. And then if the hall gets too cold, there's always a contingent of people who are unhappy with that. If it's too warm, they don't like that. We really like our comfort. Everybody like everybody likes to be comfortable. And it's really pushed in our culture. It's, it's understood to be important to be comfortable, to have just the right bed and just the right fleece and just the right pair of shoes. I mean, all the different kinds of shoes you can have for your activities now. It's pretty amazing, you know, what happened to plain old sneakers that doesn't happen anymore. Or if it's not being comfortable for you, then maybe you do it around food. And certainly, you know, we've been in a very foodie-oriented, you know, we even have foodies now, right? People who are really into food and, and want it to be in a very particular way and, and get a, an enormous amount of pleasure out of food being just so. Um, or we just don't, you know, we just don't want to be inconvenienced. And the Buddha is saying, you know, maybe this is something we don't have to have quite so much of all the time, you know, that it would be okay, you know, what would it be in a sitting to let go of being warm enough or to let go of needing to be a bit cooler or or to eat more simply for a period of time or something of that sort. It's, It's actually the renunciation side of our practice. And it's one that um that you can you can use that practice of renunciation sometimes to address this particular place where we get caught. And if, so, if you know you know that you have some issue in the sense pleasure realm, you can experiment. I really invite you to use the word experiment. You, know, you can experiment with what would it be to do this a little bit differently, and and um, could I let go of having to have it be quite so comfortable? The second place is the place that's sometimes called becoming, or sometimes called the craving for being. And so here's a question. How many of you got ahead of yourselves tonight, like to thinking about later tonight or tomorrow or next week? Yeah, right? Most of us. The mind has this incredible incredible tendency to lean out into the future to just begin to go just 
You know, and even it can be as simple as it's a great sitting, you're feeling pretty centered, you're pretty collected, and the mind just begins to go, ah, how about a retreat? And then you're out there in the future again. It's very interesting to see it. And sometimes if you watch carefully, you can even see the mind just begin to lean before it actually picks something up. And so we're always going out into the future, into the next trip or the retreat or what to do about your relationship or redecorating your house or fixing your car or maybe just thinking about, you know, you're hungry, you came to the sitting, you haven't had dinner yet, where are you going to have dinner? It might be as simple as that. Um, So we lean into the future. And then the third of the places that he points to as a place where we don't see clearly is that place where we get caught in our stories. And we talk about that a lot in here, how we come to, to almost any moment with some kind of story. We have, in the classical word is views. You have views. And having views is not considered to be such a useful thing in the Buddhist world. And sometimes... These are really old, deep-seated kinds of views. It's how you were taught that the world is when you were young. And so maybe you had experiences of loss or abandonment or abuse. And so the world isn't safe. And so you tend to see the world through that lens of the world isn't safe. Or maybe quite the opposite. Maybe you were extraordinarily carefully well cared for and raised and loved And so you have the notion that the world is always that way, and it's not. And so we come to any particular moment in time, and often we have some lens that we're seeing through. And of course the catch is that often those lenses are not conscious. They're way deep-seated down inside, and we don't even know that they're there. One of my teachers said something once that I just loved. He said, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious, right? We don't know it's there. It's nothing you can do about it in that very moment. And then, there, of course, there are ways that you can work on it when you begin to go, oh, I wonder if I have a little issue about loss or abandonment or relationship or whatever, or it shows itself in a dream, or it shows itself in a recurring pattern of your activity. And that's where you can begin to open it up and begin to see it. But it's very helpful. You know, even when we don't know what the story is that we're seeing through, it's very helpful to assume that it's there. That there may be a way in which you or I are not seeing clearly that what we think is true about any particular situation maybe is, but maybe it's not. And that, so you kind of bring that sort of questioning attitude to your own experience so that you're not locked into your opinion or your view or your story of this is how it is. So the Buddha then saying, okay, so so we have these places um, where we're not seeing so clearly, so what do we do? So the first thing he says is, well, look, see, pay 
attention. So that's a lot of what our um, our practice is, is we bring ourselves here to the cushion and you step back from your experience, that pause that we were talking about earlier, and you just notice, you give your attention to what is happening in this very moment. And of course, one of the things that we tend to have the strongest opinions about and that we tend to see in just about everything that we look at is me, right? That place where where I and me and mine is really, really central. It's really solid. It's really important. And that's what the play is about, is me, mm-hmm. right? And, and we all do this. You know, we, this place where we create some solidity around self and we hold on to it. And, and we, don't, we don't see. And the Buddha is really inviting us to begin to look, to see, is this really so? Is it so solid? You know, I've, I've thought a lot. I presume everybody was taught this way, but, you know, if you talk about evolution in school... You know, and you look at all these little one-celled creatures and then things crawl out of the ocean and then this happens and then that happens. Who's at the top? Right? Who's at the top? We are, right? And nobody ever raised the question of, A, is this a very good idea, which I sometimes wonder about, or B, what comes next? You know, maybe we're some sort of weird anomaly that went off in some direction, and who knows? But we, we tend to see even ourselves as, as a species as being really solid and really important and really the star of the show. Not necessarily true. So the Buddha really invites us to begin to be very curious, to investigate your experience, and to come to... Um, examine it and question it and wonder about it in, in deeper and deeper and deeper ways. So then the second thing he invites is he says you can exercise some restraint. Now restraint is not a word that we use a lot in our culture. You can exercise some restraint. You can pull back from things that you know lead to unskillful actions or suffering. And so that may mean certain choices about what you watch or what you read, (coughs) how much time you spend on your iPhone, iPod, computer, you know, all of that thing that that, um, somebody was showing me their iPhone the other day with I don't know how many applications they had, but they could just keep themselves entertained for hours and never look around to see anything. So we can practice restraint about what we bring into the mind and the heart. We can practice restraint around our actions, around um, interactions with other people, sexual restraint or restraint around food. And even, you know, there's that place of of um, of a certain kind of restraint with the mind. You know, when the mind starts 
going, chewing. You know how the mind chews on things sometimes and something difficult is going on or there's a difficult interaction that you're having and you just chew on it and you chew on it and you chew on it. And that's not always so skillful. And so it can be really helpful to practice some restraint to let go of that and to take your mind someplace else. And, you know, the someplace else might be a walk at the beach or a good book or something, just anything that keeps it from chewing on it so that you're practicing some kind of restraint. The other place, I was having a conversation with somebody earlier today, and the other place, of course, that I think is an excellent place to practice restraint is with your email. You know, that send button, Mm-hmm. That one, how many, you know, we've all sent unskillful emails, right? That place where some, you read one and then you think, <laughs> you type in as fast as you can type in, and then you hit the send button. And then, you know, later that day, there's 55 emails, everybody has an opinion, everybody's bad at everybody else, and it's all a huge mess because everybody's been hitting the send button. And I'm, I'm actually thinking that we, sh- we should get it set up somehow that you can't quite do it. You know, if the emails just come in, there's no possibility to reply for two hours or something like that. So that you can think about it, you can practice some restraint. Restraint's a wonderful word. word. He also suggests that we can be careful about using things wisely, the really wise use, and this is not the political sense, the environmental sense of wise use, which doesn't sound like it is, actually. But he's really meaning quite seriously, how do you use the things that come into your life well and carefully? How do you use food, clothing, resting places, and medicine are on his list. And to use them for protection, not for indulgence. And, you know, sometimes I, I practice with the monks, and um, you go up, and if you stay in the monastery, um, they have this lovely blessing chant that they do in Pali. And then they all sit there, and they take the lid off their bowls, and they look down into whatever it is that's in their bowl. And then they have this, this it's actually not a chant, they say it. <coughs> and they talk about that this food that they're about to take in is for sustaining the body and it's not for fun. And every time I hear that, I get a little, mm, I'm like, what do you mean it's not for fun? Look at that cheesecake, that's for fun. <laughs> but, the, the inten- but really creating the intention that this is about really the wise use of food and that why you're eating is to sustain this body so that you can wake up. That's all, period. So, but really beginning to look at how do you use the things that come to you wisely. And then he suggests, here's another unpopular word in our culture, enduring. Enduring. So enduring the difficult things that come your way. Whatever that might be. So it might be physical discomfort. Your body might be difficult for a while, maybe something's gotten tweaked, it's not working so well, or injured, or you're a bit sick, or maybe even a lot sick. Or sometimes what's difficult is a relationship gets into a difficult place. And words are said, and things happen, and it's just very painful. And everything in us wants to shut down and flee. And the Buddha suggests that there's something worthwhile 
and enduring and being patient and waiting to see what would happen. Or sometimes even in communities, we've even had this in this community, there's difficult times in a community when there's pain and discord and it's not clear how it's going to play itself out. And again, that's a place where where if we sort of settle in and go, okay, let's see how this can be worked out. How can we sit with it and stay with it? And always when I come to this particular place in the list, you know, I remember many years ago now when I was going through a very difficult time in my marriage and I thought it had come to an end, but somehow we didn't quite get around to doing anything about it. We just endured And later I said, you know, it was like watching the corpse to see if it would twitch. (laughs) And in this case, it did. And it came back to life. It wasn't dead at all. It just was going through whatever it was that it needed to go through. And then there it was. And, you know, it wasn't that there wasn't work to be done to do the healing that needed to happen. There was. There was plenty of work and continues to be work. But it would have been a terrible mistake to walk away. And so the Buddha's really inviting us to have that. He's not saying, you know, stay in impossible circumstances, but just kind of not be too quick to be reactive and to give things time to show themselves and to unfold themselves. So then, he says, the next on the list, So here's a nice one. Everyone will like this. He says, it's also okay to avoid things. Mm -hmm. So it's not all about marching, you know, right into the middle of whatever is awful and difficult. But there are things... So here's his list of what should be avoided. He says, the Buddha says, a monk reflecting wisely avoids a wild elephant, a wild horse, a wild bull, a wild dog, a snake a stump, a bramble patch, a chasm, a cliff, a cesspit, or a sewer. (laughs) So, you know, wild elephants are not probably part of your everyday experience. But what he's really saying is there are things that are clearly dangerous and difficult and you don't need to go there. And so you can turn away, you know. And I brought with me, I don't think I'll read the whole thing, there's a poem that often shows up at retreats, you know, and it's that one that starts, I walk down the street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I fall in, I'm lost, I'm helpless, it isn't my fault, it takes forever to find a way out. Maybe I will read the whole thing. I walk down the same street, there's a deep hole in the sidewalk, I pretend I don't see it, I fall in again, I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault, it still takes a long time to get out. Three, I walk down the same street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it is there. I still fall in. It's a habit. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It's my fault. I get out immediately. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. And then lastly, I walk down a different street. So this is exactly what the Buddha is talking about. There are things that you can take a different way. You know, you don't need to repeatedly walk into a situation that is not going to be productive, is not going to be healthy, is not going to be creative for you. And then he says, when we do 
have unskillful states that arise in the mind. So your mind is filled with anger or aversion or fear. Then we can begin to take some action to change what's going on in the mind. And this is one of the places I think where practice is really helpful, you know. So that when um, there's a lot of fear, you know, maybe what comes, you, you move towards practices of compassion, or when it's anger, we move towards practices of loving kindness. And so a lot of these practices that you learn here or on retreat actually become tools that you can use to direct the mind in a different way. And it isn't, hmm, it isn't always that the feeling changes right away as you do that. You know, you may still be filled with anger and you're sitting there saying, may she be happy. (laughs) May she be peaceful. Growl. And you're just, you know, it's so hard to feel like you really want this person to be happy and peaceful, but you do it anyway because actually creating that intention that this, the mind could go toward wanting this other person to be happy and peaceful actually begins slowly, slowly to change the direction of the mind. It's very interesting. And you may not believe me, I can only say try it because I've seen it happen over and over and over again with people who have tried these practices. And then, last of all, he suggests that we develop the factors that will uh, allow us to do this. So to develop the ability to be fully present with our experience by doing practices like the mindfulness practice. Developing um, the ability to investigate your experience. Developing loving kindness and compassion and tranquility and concentration and all of the different factors that really help the mind to open up and to settle. The Buddha was really interested in having all beings come to an end of suffering. And he really, he saw, he thought that it was possible to do this. That it was possible for each one of us to let go enough, let go and let be enough, so that we would come to an end of suffering. And he also saw that when we do this, of course, we impact all of those around us, and then that begins to to contribute to the ending of suffering of all beings. So I hope that some little piece of this might be helpful as you play with your own practice and find ways to deepen it. And I'd be happy to take questions or comments about anything that I've said tonight. So the talk is now yours. Please, Heidi. I'm thinking about travel and packing these days and it seems to relate to the whole topic of sense sense pleasures and comfort because <laughs> you know as, as I pack for a trip uh, if I, I want to be sure that I have everything that might possibly be needed you know for uh-huh. my comfort and then I really might want to have another shawl 
or you know this skirt would be really you know or the, the perfect shoes for this outfit and then I can have a huge amount of luggage and end up extremely burdened and hassled and you know lugging around mm-hmm. all this stuff and really cre- increasing suffering for myself but if I let those go and just decide you know if I'm a little chilly, I'll just endure. I create so much freedom for myself in recognizing that I don't need all this <laughs> stuff. I don't need to uh, take care of every eventuality. And I think that this is true a lot in the rest of, of, yeah. of yeah. life, that we create a lot more freedom when we just let go that feeling of, well, I might have to have that. And we are preyed on to oh, yeah. have to have. But, you know, I'm going more for a carry-on life these days. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the carry-on life, I like it. Yeah, yeah. It's a good image, I think. I, I know, I'm thinking that I've often found myself going shopping on the day before I leave for the one thing that I have to have that will make my trip perfect. And I finally realized that that was a habit that had more to do with anxiety than it did with any real need. Yeah. Other comments or questions? Please, Axel. You turn that thing off, too. I don't know how to No. I'm going to leave it on. <laughs> questions get recorded. Oh. Right. No. Um, fine. Well, uh, my thinking is, is I, mean, I think these lists are great. And, um, to me, there's a need for authenticity mm-hmm. in the practice, which means that if we do things because somebody else says, oh, you got to do this or you got to do that, it's not the same thing as finding out for yourself that, um, hmm, if I do this, this is this is what happens. It's sort of mm-hmm. what Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, where you know you bring about conditions. To, you bring about, you, you, there are certain causes that will bring about certain conditions. So if we expose our mind to certain things, certain things happen. And uh, I've noticed for myself that not practicing is actually a great way to practice, which means, you know, if you do go and indulge, you can quickly learn and find your limits where you get caught. Um, And doing that actually helps you to figure out how to actually enjoy yourself and indulge without getting caught, if that makes any sense. It's knowing your limits, knowing where sure. something's unwholesome for you versus, you know, second, you know, an alcoholic that would say, well, you know, uh, I'm, I have to be cold turkey, I can't drink anything, or, uh, you know, you can handle so and so much, and after that point, it gets to be too much. There's a certain self-knowledge that has to go into it, but totally. it has to be from an authentic place, otherwise it's just following somebody else's list. The Buddha would totally agree with you. You know, he's, he, in fact, very clearly said, all of this is intended for you to check it out for yourself. And really, I think of these lists or the various teachings or the teachings of contemporary teachers as being like roadmaps, you know. And so if I have a roadmap that tells me how to get from here to Los Angeles, do I know what it's like to go from here to Los Angeles? No, I don't. And what's really important is that I either get on my bicycle or in my automobile or walk. I mean, if I walk from here to Los Angeles, I am really going to know what the terrain, at least along the path that I walk, 
it is like. But on the other hand, if I walk along the coast, will I know what it's like if I walk down through the Sierra Nevada? No. So, so it's it's really intended to be. Um, all of these things are intended to be something that you can take and you can go home and go, huh, I wonder, this restraint stuff, you know. And then play with it, you know. Play with not being restrained and see what happens. And it might exactly, as you say, it might teach you exactly what you need to do. Jack used to tell, Jack Cornfield, a wonderful story about somebody who experimented with food by eating as many, do you know what gulab jamun are? They're a very sweet Indian treat. Very, 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 very sweet. And he ate as many as he could. And that took care of it quite nicely. He didn't ever want to do it again. You know? But so he started he sort of went way overboard in order to find his balance place. There are some things probably where it wouldn't be so skillful to do that because you might hurt somebody, but I don't imagine gulab jamun is one of them. Uh, you know, I haven't walked I think this list, the list is great. I resonated with every single one of them. So Yeah, yeah. yeah. but they really Except are. They all. all of these teachings, <laughs> I try to say this so often on retreat, they're all intended to be structures for the investigation of your own heart and mind. So if you don't take them and go home and go, huh, I wonder how this one works for me, then, you know, I might as well not talk. Or the Buddha might as well not teach. It's really intended for you to find out. Um, yeah. I mean, the Buddha, part of part, the understanding, actually, is part of how you get to be a Buddha is you come to all of this completely on your own without anybody having given you any guidance at all. So... And the Buddha had some teaching, so that's that's an interesting sort of story, but it's a thought. Anyone else? One more, please, Diane. Um, I really like uh, the opportunity when my mind starts going off on things, or uh-huh. I start planning for my vacation and packing the suitcase in my head. Just to really look at it as an opportunity to, it's almost like a red flag for me. Uh-huh. Oh, okay, now's the time that I need to take a deep breath, or... Now's the time, like I'm racing down the street and eating at the same time. Ah, oh, yeah, now's the time I need uh-huh. to just slow uh-huh. down and take a, uh-huh. take a break. Maybe do a little, compa- you know, I'm beating myself up about something that I didn't do or did do or whatever. A little compassion practice for myself yeah. right now. Yeah. And sometimes if I go off and I'm just really far, I just push the reset button. <laughs> Let it go of all of it. And just come back and, and either sit for a minute, do a walking meditation, something to just come back mm-hmm. to me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think pushing the reset button, however you do that, you know, it might be exercise, it might be, you know, a period of sitting. It could be lots of different ways that you kind of pick yourself up and just move out of that rut. Yeah, really important. Well... I think we'll stop. Let me make some announcements. I will turn this on. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.